Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy, my co-host Steve Walsh. Hello. And our guest this week is writer, comedian and podcaster Daniel Ruiz Tyson. It's nice to be here. Thanks for coming, man. Just before we get into it, if you go to southlandhardcore.com, uh, you'll find full details of our Monsieur Non t-shirt competition. Uh, so get involved with that. You can submit your designs to southlandhardcore at gmail.com. Also, on southrunhardcore.spreadshirt.co.uk, you'll see our new South London Herc Core t-shirt, designed by Lord Herc himself, flying out the, uh, off the shelf, Steve, already. That's a lovely thing, isn't it? It's great, isn't it? Maybe our best t-shirt so far. Available in a range of colours, slim fit and uh, regular fit. Not available in kids and women's sizes? Yeah, they don't the tell them what it's not available in. It is available. Get, a, get a smaller men's one if you want it, ladies. Or larger, depending on your frame. <laughs> Plenty of designs on there. A new new t-shirts, new Owen Pomery design t-shirt. The We Is Us t-shirts, which we've reappropriated from Tottenham Hotspur as a concept. Yeah, and better put them out in, in the colours other than navy and white. <laughs> Maybe we'll sell them to the masses. Right, thanks for coming on the show, Daniel. We both really enjoy your podcast, Daniel Ruiz Tyson is Available, which is not, uh, it's defunct, should we say. It's, on hiatus? It, it's something. It is, <laughs> it is something. The, the struggles of, you know, I admire uh, your output. Uh, people don't realise how hard it is to get a podcast out every week. And uh, it was just, uh, a, a, a cut a long story short, bought a, bought a desk last year by mistake, back in September, uh, kid's desk. Took delivery, uh, dropped, couldn't get the coffee and the laptop on the desk. Coffee dropped on the laptop uh, after recording the uh, series for the radio station. The podcast was coming back and the uh, recording software doesn't work. And that was that was just it for me. I was thinking, this is this is just not meant to be. It's a sign from the gods. It's a sign from someone, the podcast <laughs> gods. Luckily, it is all available online. We'll uh, go through your stuff throughout the show. We'll just get some links in early, though. On Twitter, you are at 1607WestEgg. Yep. 1607, oh, it's 1607, isn't it? Should I just say 1607? Say 1607. Yeah, yeah. I'll let, so leave it for the Twitter, 16, just in case anyone gets confused. Okay. Billy's Who Rivers 9. I've had great difficulty <laughs> finding him. Um, 1607westegg.wordpress.com for all of your stuff. Yeah. And uh, we'll talk about The Letter, which is your series uh, for Resonance FM, which is great. Enjoyed it so much. Owen Pomery listened to six episodes back to back. And you know what his high standards are like, Steve. <laughs> And you can get that from the letter official blog.wordpress.com. Yeah. But we'll come to those shortly. On your website, Daniel, you uh, kindly uh, added us to your kind of recommended podcast section. And you said something that we and Steve are well aware of uh, that Saffron Hardcore is all, all encompassing of uh, the semi city that we inhabit. But it does have a southeast bias. We didn't get to South West London until episode, what was it, 13? And that was pretty much as a direct result of the charge being levelled at us. That I think, was it someone or yourself who said, uh, it's basically just been about the wharf road? At this point. <laughs> yeah, it's heavily wharf and Camberwell. But um, we do like to cover uh, as much of South London as possible. But part of it is that we don't want to shortchange the areas. Say Ballam was a bit of a turning point for me, in terms of the episodes, what was that, 47 or something? Yeah, that was one where Lakeisha... We had Lakeisha and my wife. Yeah. And um, 
sort of had invited her on because she went to school in Ballam. But as okay. the, uh, throughout the show, it kind of transpired that she didn't go to school in Ballam. She went to school in Clapham, uh, uh, Lara Trey Girls School. That Lara Trey is Ballam. My, my sister was at Lara Trey. Ah, there we go. So if, you, if you're listening, Lakeisha, and I know and you're not. not. <laughs> right, okay. But we hadn't got to grips with Ballam. Yeah. And, but we've got you on the show. And you've uh, lived in uh, South West London. You've I've lived in Ballam as it's well. It's lived in you. Yeah. Ballam I'm not a fan of. Ballam is, like so many places, trying too hard to be Clapham. There is this obsession southwest of the river, sorry, in southwest London, rather, that every, everyone's trying to be the new Clapham. And I'm saying, well, hang on a sec. I don't like Clapham. <laughs> well, you know, Bri- Brixton, I think, for example, um, one of the things that's happened to me in the last few years uh, you know, the recession changes you as a person, it, and it's kind of pushed me sort of southeast and, re, you know, become familiar all over again with Camberwell, Brixton. I'm, thinking, I'm sorry about that. No. Well, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, I don't mind Brixton. I actually, I prefer yeah. Brixton to Clapham. It's more honest, but yeah, there is a, you, you get the feeling that Brixton wants to be more than it is. But I, I go into Brixton, and I know people criticise Brixton Village, and it is slightly, manu- well, it's more than slightly manufactured. <laughs> But there's still a sense of community there that mm. I don't find in Clapham. I, I don't think there's much of it in Ballon. Um, and yeah, just, that just disappoints me a little. Yeah, Brixton, I think, can never become Clapham, can it? There's just too... It's, there's too much and the roots are too deep. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been so sort of... So solidly one place for so long and has mm. such a strong identity. Whereas with Clapham and Ballon, as you say... They've never really had the same identity as strongly in the same way. There's not a sort of, you know, a, a resonance about them when you, you talk about the names and you think about the places there is with, with Brixton. You know, Ballam's been taken over by the Clappermites, hasn't it? Yeah. I spent... Clappermized. Sorry, <laughs> let me let you finish. <laughs> I, I spent uh, three, four months last year at the end of the Northern Line, and the one thing that wasn't happening ten years ago is uh, there weren't many people staying on beyond uh, Tooting Broadway, but that train now all the way to Morden. You know, it's packed. It is right. people are being pushed out, and uh, you know, ten years ago you wouldn't have considered living in Morden, and now you think, well, I'll take Morden if I have to. Do, <laughs> yeah. If I have to do something, I'll do Morden. You know, Collier's Wood starting to sound quite attractive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> SW9, Stockwell, and a bit of Brixton as well. Isn't yeah, it? that's um, that's that's where I grew up. Funny enough, when I was younger, I'd say actually for the first twenty years of my life, although Stockwell featured in my life on a daily basis it was always Clapham Clapham North Clapham High Street did all my schooling in Clapham uh, all Catholic schools uh, my secondary school we got pushed out to Battersea when I was about 13 right by the power station and that was grim in the 80s that really uh, you know <laughs> the, the power station for me for me now such a beautiful thing and I heard mm. you guys talking about how it couldn't have been very nice to be living near the power station when it was functioning and it wasn't nice in the uh, in the mid '80s, but now I just think it's such a it, it's such a beautiful thing. But that area is changing, and it's changing very quickly. Um, and I basically embraced Stockwell because I could no longer deal with Clapham. There were so many faces from from school and their parents, and how are you? You know, how's your family? This and that. And uh, I, I do struggle with small talk. I started taking to the back streets. Uh, I was doing college in uh, Wandsworth Road. I was working in Clapham by the time I left school, and uh, the high street was changing a lot. When I was a kid, it was uh, for me. Obviously, it was a, it was a very exciting thing. There was a, there were two pet shops, there were Woolies, there were super drugs. There were so many shoes. I mean, I, I don't know what it was with the shoe shops. There were at least ten shoe shops. 
um, ice cream shops. Uh, it was just, uh, it was very, it, it, there was a sense of community, which may or may not have been there, as, as, as you suggest. But then, you know, um, the cinema came back in, I think, at the early 90s. And I think that was a brilliant thing for Clapham. But Is that uh, the Yeah, but it just seemed to usher in a, there was a bit of rebuilding and, you know, a couple of gyms came in, a few cafes started to disappear. and Gyms is a bad sign, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And I just thought, um, you know, one of my great friends, he lives in St. Luke's, or lived in St. Luke's Avenue for like nearly 30 years. And you cannot recognise the entrance to that street now because they built that big building. I think it's the library that's there. Right, yeah, it used yeah. to be Mary Seacole House. Uh, Lambeth were in there and I, I worked for them briefly. Um, uh, a dozen years ago maybe so I don't know if Clapham can change any more than it already has but for me it's just when I think of myself as a kid and my parents and uh, I wonder where people go to do their shops I guess everyone now has a car you know yeah, they just right. need one supermarket but back in the day you'd be in and out of shops yeah. buying something from every shop you'd get to know shopkeepers there were people who'd be there 20-30 years and they were pillars of the community and there's a, a lot of areas now, I think, southwest of the river where that's not happening. People are only passing through until the next big place becomes available. You, you get the sense, of, as a friend of mine says, that everyone ultimately wants to move to Chelsea or the countryside. And they're only there in that area for three or four years. So all these bars are coming up. There was the uh, coaching horses at the top of my old road where I grew up, Mayflower Road. It was always empty. Always empty. Went through a few refurbishments. Um and still empty and then it was became a uh, it started doing a comedy night and there was a fire during one of the comedy nights a couple of years ago so it's now re-emerged rebranded itself the phoenix and it is packed so you right. you know like a friend of mine said where were these people when it was the coach and horses they were probably drinking in bars right after work not wanting anything to do with that community but they're all there now and the prices have shot up and i just find it disappointing when areas do that yeah and it is a case of the supermarkets have come in yeah. So you don't need the smaller shops anymore. No. And suddenly a row of shops will disappear, turn into flats. Yep. These people are moving into the flats. They want a trendy bar rather than a traditional pub. They want, um, you know, the occasional uh, chocolatier or cheesemonger. But ideally just go to Waitrose and don't worry about it. Don't need, you know, shoe shops selling reasons by shoes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the high street has changed a lot in it for a variety of reasons, but... Like you say, Clapham is the most extreme example, probably in the. I suppose East Dulwich is a, sort of a junior. Clapham sort it? of made of bars now, though, isn't it? That's what I think of when I think of. Clapham. And you know what? They all show rugby. You know, trouble with <laughs> me and my yeah. friend Dan. We went to watch some Tottenham game that was on like half five on a Saturday, and we were running, running into different pubs and bars, and just we ended up in like Lavender Hill. We were like <laughs> going through estates trying to get to somewhere that was not showing rugby. You know, toffs, as you've mentioned before. <laughs> Just no escaping, is it? But you make a, uh, quite a distinction between Clapham and Clapham Junction. Yeah, it bothers me. During the coverage in the riots uh, when Clapham Junction got hit, the media were referring to it as Clapham. People on Twitter were referring to it as Clapham. And I'm, it, it bothers me. It's a completely different place. Obviously, the name Miles can away. be confusing. Yeah. Again, there's another one where I've tried to get from one to the other on foot and like in a short space of time. Don't work to eat miles away. It's common in between. Yeah, yeah, it is. I, I think there was talk a few years ago of renaming Clapham Junction as Battersea Central, which sounded too American oh, yeah. for my liking, but it may have been a way around the problem. But uh, It's a way into another problem, though, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but Clapham, 
I don't think Clapham got hit. I don't think Clapham was ever going to get hit that night. Um, but Clapham Junction did get hit. But I, I still like Clapham Junction. I still think, again, it's... Although, it, you know, it's got the, the Waitroses there now instead of the old Woolies, I think. where I, I worked there as a kid for, for three years and I had a great time in the area. But you can still, you know, recognise enough about Clapham Junction to think, yeah, this is the place I, I really loved as a, as a teenager. And you've got Northcote Road at the bottom of that, which... No, it's, a, it's it's a bit poncy, but there's a place for ponciness, you know. As long as yeah, yeah, yeah as, as long as it's contained. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if people are smashing it up, that's a good sign for an area. I think that's why we've still got hope in the Wharf Road. People are there rioting. As long as they they finish at some stage, it's, all good. it's fine. <laughs> SW15. If I don't tell you what that is, do you know what it is? Part me. Can't See, I, I wouldn't know. This no. is terrible. I was, I, was doing, on, uh, I was on Wikipedia earlier typing in uh, South West London. Maybe West people are right about us in South West London. Because, like, <laughs> SE15, I guess, I'd sort of go lavender. SE15, Steve. That's oh, an easy one, isn't it? Peckham. Yeah. All right, fair enough. <laughs> SE14. New Cross. All right, all right. <laughs> SE16. Forest Hill? Don't know. Don't know. <laughs> is there one? There's got to be one. Yes, SW15. SW15, um, I was there at my last college. I did a few colleges. Uh, I had a, I was just not focused enough to pass exams. Uh, but I enjoyed the college lifestyle. And, uh, it was. <laughs> I don't think life gets better than college, really. Um, I was just not ready to be an adult. My final college was uh, this fantastic uh, concrete and glass building on uh, Putney Hill. And uh, it was around the time I was really starting to write seriously. And I had a year there. And then I think maybe because I was living a little in the past, years later when the money was coming in, I was starting to pick up a few writing commissions. I thought, I'll live in Putney. I can, I can do Putney. <laughs> and there was no real community. It was very exclusive, very, you know, South Africans, Australians, lots of rugby. I was going to say, um, more rugby than the yeah, Clapham, if anything, yeah. if that's possible. And, um, yeah, it wasn't great. It wasn't great. But um, Rugby and rowing. There'd be rowing as well, wouldn't Lots there? of rowing. Yeah. Lots of rowing. Funnily enough, there was, uh, you've got Bishop's Park just on the other side of the bridge. Is that where, the way to Craven Cottage? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. and that is a, that's a beautiful park, I have to say. Um, that's so where they, is that where they filmed the, the Omen. Optimist of Nine Elms? Oh, you mentioned that, actually. I as think well. so, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a little disappointing, but at the same time, you, you kind of think, well, where, where have I lived? I've lived in all these sort of rough areas and... It was good to try it, you know. It was, it was good to. It, it was good to try. It I gave it a go. I gave it a go. I had a dishwasher that I never used. I had a balcony that I never went out on. It looked out onto the high street. I didn't see the point of that. Um, you know, traffic, slow crawling traffic. You know, I just don't understand balconies. What uh, a panorama! Yeah, it just didn't. So uh, I never went out on the balcony. Never used the dishwasher. But I had a good couple of years there. I had my own study. I was writing things. Were adults desk. Adults desk, <laughs> adults desk, and a desktop. I think if you're a writer, you've got to have a desktop. There's got to be a desktop. In What's there a now. desktop? The one that flips open? No, no, that's that's a laptop. Desktop. Is oh, well, you desktop. mean desktop computer? Yeah, I thought you meant like no, an no, old no. like school style desk. You know, no, I've no. got to keep my pen he's, somewhere. He's the tech guy. <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> you've got to be pounding a keyboard, a proper keyboard, and uh, yeah, I can't use a laptop. Look at the size of my hands. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I, did, I did notice as I met you tonight. Oh my god, that, yeah, that's, it's goalkeeper's hands. You know? <laughs> I um. Yeah, when I had my Waterstones interview, don't shop at Waterstones, that's the rule. Yeah. <laughs> I have to give the disclaimers. I don't want people to think I remember my time fondly. But when I was interviewed for the job at Oxford Street, like the manager and the assistant manager interviewed me, they sort of, where I'd been gesticulating a lot with my hands, <laughs> like apparently when I left, they were like, did he have gigantism? 
<laughs> and I'm like, you know, I'm like, I'm, not, I'm only six foot one. But yeah, I mean, these are these things. Anyway. Maybe that's part of the uh, problem with the injury. Maybe your hands are too big for the rest of your body. Have, has, has, maybe, has, yeah, the yeah. No, but maybe if I go to... Uh, a crack sank here, I? If I was a lady, I would feel safe with you. If I was your, <laughs> if I was your father-in-law I would, and I met you for the first time, I'd say, I think my, my daughter will be safe with this man. I, I think he could handle an intruder. It's Wreck just... it Ralph over there. <laughs> but uh, goalkeeping, obviously that's a bit of a segue. You even say segue on your show segue, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> segue into uh, Clapham Common. You know. Yeah. A third, third separate area of Clapham? Yeah, I reckon. Yeah. It's distinct, isn't it? Well, yeah. this is the authorities, dude. Don't Sorry, be well, I, <laughs> I think for me, Clapham, I, I, one of my, my first school was off Crescent Lane, St. Mary's uh, Infants, and uh, you got the common on the right, and I just never enjoyed going there, and I think it was partly, I, I know you don't like dogs. I don't like dogs. Yeah. Oh, I don't yeah. like parks. I, I don't understand, you know, Clapham's got an open-air cinema, right? I, I I don't no. understand how that works. It's you don't no know what you're sitting on. It's a <laughs> late night film. You're taking a picnic blanket. Yeah. What are you going to do with that after you've used it? You're just using it once, I'm assuming. You know, you can't, <laughs> I don't understand that. And I, I just never liked it. But my dad was a real outdoors guy. He grew up in Spain on the beach. And Clapham was the closest he got to that. He was always on the common. But I couldn't deal with the dogs. I couldn't deal with the dogma. But... Uh, he was convinced I was going to be the next uh, Peter Shilton, and uh, <laughs> he had me there nearly every night. You know, seven or eight years old. I I don't think there would be many better kids my age at goalkeeping in, in the country. It was just ridiculous. It was it was brutal. It was about an hour before I got to see the ball. It's just all sorts of <laughs> exercises, stretches. Um, it's Malcolm Gladwell, isn't it? It's your ten thousand hours. You, know, was, you, you yeah. got it in before you were ten. It was uh, so you did you did uh, improve as a goal. You were a decent goalkeeper. I, goal I, I, I don't think I've ever been better at anything else. Till the age of twelve, it was uh, it was just instinctive, and uh, even until I was in my thirties, uh, playing, I would be playing, pulling off saves, and I'm thinking, how did I do? It? And that was my dad making those saves. Yeah, you right, know? It, was right. ju- it was just there. Muscle you know? memory. It was, um, but I never quite enjoyed it. But it was it was my way of getting him off my back you know I think every boy has one thing that he knows he can do to get you know to, to keep in with his dad you want still to impress trying your to find dad. what mine is <laughs> not podcasting because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he will listen to it but <laughs> there's, there's always something he doesn't like no nah, he does he often <laughs> does compliment me on it yeah SW8's probably the, the big one to talk about yeah tell us about SW8 SW8 after I mean I've I've had uh, one of my closest friends who's always lived there um, there was a Spanish social club um, not far from the uh, from the cafe, and that's still there. It's no longer. I mean, there's not much of a Spanish community left there now. Um, so I was always down there. It was always part of my life, whether I was going on a bus, going to work, or visiting a friend, or you know, uh, my first college was there. But um, then it became uh, the, the Portuguese. The influx of Portuguese and sort of mid to late nineties really changed the area. And it wasn't a change that I was immediately aware of. And it's I don't really remember much about it before maybe the start of the millennium, even though I was down there a lot. Um, but around the time the things started to change for me and I started to think, well, I think I need to get out of London, maybe not only London, out of the country. It was a way for me of connecting to sort of my Mediterranean roots and it, and, and it was there and uh, the noise, uh, the different languages, they kind of, they really do take me back to my earliest years when I was growing up in... Um, Mayflower Road, Clapham North, Stockwell, 
border were all just foreigners, you know, no, hardly no. anyone spoke English and uh, 48 houses, kids playing on the streets and then that all changed in the early to mid 80s, you know, the, the buy to let thing, you know, people buying their own homes and, you know, the working class, you know, we have to accept we're complicit in this, in, in destroying their own communities and moving out and I'd be saying to my mum, you know, new people were moving in, young couples and be thinking, why can I see into their houses what's going on here I can see them eating I didn't you know what's happened to the net curtains <laughs> um, and I think you know it was hearing these people and hearing these voices in these different languages and seeing their kids um, I don't know it was kind of helped me reconnect I think with what I felt I was I was losing um, and I remember as a kid uh, Richard Scarry's animal books they always seem to have something going on in them full of color full of characters and uh, I think without SWA, the last few years, I probably wouldn't have been writing anything. It's just, it, 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 it's, I've probably moved 20, 25 times in the last four or five years after living 24 years in the same house. It's, you know, the fear of staying in one place. And SWA is the closest that I've ever come to feeling part of a, of a community again. It's, um, it's just, uh, but, but I, but I do think it is. It's going to struggle, you know. Uh, I think you guys, uh, your your Nine Elms show, raised those concerns, and I, I, you know that is a big fear for me. I'm seeing those those changes, and uh, on the one hand, I'm looking at all this. I think you refer to it as the glass age, and I love glass, but <laughs> but, but, but but that that the skyline is changing dramatically. New businesses are coming in, and I'm thinking, well, how long can these guys live out? Because these are small, independent mm. businesses. What's going to happen to them? You got Starbucks, Waitrose, Sainsbury's, uh, Tesco's, Nando's. Nando's have come in, and you're thinking, where is this going? Um, I mean, Nine Elms is a very specific regeneration because yeah, it's, it's not yeah. like isn't it? Really? Yeah, I in mean, terms of certainly in terms of South London, it's in it, terms of London because this is not what yeah, London, it's it's a cultural London is. Shift London is an organic... in of London, and like the idea that you're going to have, you know, you always think of it's basically embassies moving in, yeah, and that you know you always just think of embassies as being in central London near Parliament near. You know, the, the, that's always been the story of London. The north side of the river is where the power sits and the south side of the river is where the people sit. And now suddenly you've got, you know, it's bad enough when we had, you know, uh, yuppies coming down and driving people out by inflating property prices. But we're going to get, you know, uh, it on an international scale now. We're going to get upwardly mobile Americans and Chinese coming in, driving people even further out. Yeah, and the, the thing about it is it's not just like, oh, this... this uh, one embassy is springing up. Not, I, don't know, I don't know if that would happen anyway, and then we'll see what happens around it. It's just like, no, this is the plan. These embassies are coming in. Is it China? Is that confirmed yet? I think it's US, China, and Holland. Yeah, right, okay. And then by the time they, they're built, I imagine there'll be others that have signed up to it. The power station is going to be what it's going to be. And it's just like, I mean, you could pro you could probably, there's probably available a map of exactly what's going to be. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Everything yeah, yeah. that's going to be everywhere. And it's like, no, this is what's happened. And I think your point earlier about the, the power station is true. You know, for so long, you know, it would have been seen as a symbol of an outdated outdated mode of, of power and pollution. And, you know, uh, I, I like it visually as a building, but other people would have had issues with the chimneys and whatnot. But now I think because it's been there for so long and it's so resonant in terms of people's memories of Battersea as a place. Yeah. And it is almost like an anchor to the past where you go, this was a place where people lived. This is a place where people worked. And it's not going to be that soon, for better or for worse, you know, for, for the people that are moving in for the better, for the people that are being forced out for the worse. 
I've worked in Canary Wharf, uh, the worst job I've ever had yeah, as a security Wharf, guard one summer, and it was all marshlandiness, you know, seeing this thing spring up, and I was thinking, this is incredible, this looks, this looks amazing, but I didn't really understand what was going on, I was too young, but I do understand this, and it, it does worry me, and people are being pushed out, and I think, Jack, you raised the concern as well about social housing there. There's no affordable mm. housing coming in, in the Nine Elms redevelopment until I think 2025, also, their definition of affordable yeah. and what's actually yeah. affordable are two very different things. Well, this, I mean, we try really, almost try not to, I try not to think about uh, the social housing problem. And we try, we almost try not to talk about it. Not with, I'm always going, we, we better not talk about it because it's so depressing. But it's something that you talk about a lot on your show. But the, the rise of landlordism is mm-hmm. just an absolute disaster. And and almost with this, I think I said this on the Nine Elm show that I'm, I almost just discount that now. Because it's such a big, it's such a big problem, the social housing situation, the fact that there's no commitment to it at all, that it almost doesn't matter if they, if Nine Elms springs up as like in its new form, like regardless of if that happens or not, they're not interested in us renters, are they? No, I've just been kicked off the uh, social housing registry. I'm trying to play the long game thing. Okay, do I want to live in a council house? Probably not. Do I need a plan B for my life? Yes, I do. I, I you know, I can't be a snob if I have to come back to an area that I didn't want to live in I'm ready to do it uh, you know 35 years in Lambeth born born and bred in Lambeth I can't get a place I'm not going to look at other communities and people who've come here and say oh why, why do they get a flat no everyone has the right to, to house mm. it you know what's happening is obviously you know people are now I think they're offering three or four years in a, a house once your kids grow up you get moved on so what does that do to communities how you're not going to get families being in an area now for 20 30 years but i can't even get a toehold in any community so then you look at housing associations but housing associations are so closely linked now to councils mm, so that yeah. door's closed so it is private renting you think okay i'll have to do that that's that's the real world i could do that then you look at your salary and it's like so you so you get up early, you go to a you know you go to a job you don't particularly want to do. You're doing what you need to do as a as a man to get by, but it impacts on your dreams. And you're thinking, well, you know, I'm good at I'm good at writing. It's the one thing I'm good at. It's the only goalkeeping. Have, goalkeeping. <laughs> I'm good at two things. <laughs> two things. <laughs> um, how do I do this? And I, I don't know how to do that. You know, I'm at a loss. It's mm. you. you uh, a friend of mine said to me, "You're on a wheel," and uh, that's what it feels like. On the wheel, you know. <laughs> it just it, it's it's about then resting and making sure you've got the energy to do what you need to do to get out of it. But it, it's it's the biggest challenge of my life as, as an adult. It's made me grow up the last few years, and it's all just very wrong. But it is it is what it is, you know. And I think some of these buildings that are cropping up are absolutely beautiful. But uh, I doubt I'll ever get further than the lobby, no. you know. <laughs> Yeah, like Lakeisha made this uh, comment as we were we were just by Brixton Village, as it's called now. There's a new building that's just gone up opposite Summer Layton, you know, Summer Layton, the kind of yeah. strangely shaped building. And Lakeisha made this comment about people living in Summer Layton looking out onto this new building and like how essentially it was taunting them. And I was, <laughs> I, my point was it's not, it's the other way around. Like you've got people living in, not the people who everyone who's got a council house has got some idealised life. I don't no, mean no, that no. at all. But you've got people who get to pay 120 quid a week rent, you know, for like a free bedroom. And they're looking out on people who have got to pay like a grand for a two bedroom or whatever, or one bedroom in the same area. I mean, it's just a massive stitch up, isn't it? And it's, you know, it's just been encouraged as if it's an acceptable and... Uh, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Steve? It means like you can, uh, it works, it will be able to. Practical. No, it's not practical. I could have got practical. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sustainable, right. like, as in it's a sustainable model for people living. It's not, but you know, you've got a government in charge. Not that the Labour government really helped us out because they, they they let it get into this situation as well. But you've got, got government in charge. You could not care less about the poor. Well, no, things it, aren't going to change. Not, it's not even an indifference. It's a definite policy because with the collapse, that's probably a bit dramatic, but with the demise of traditional British industries, uh, property investment and property building and land, landlordism generates income. They see it as a success. They love this. They love the fact that the last thing that a Tory government wants is uh, council houses. They made that very clear we're in the 80s and there's nothing that's going to change that. And as you say, labour, you know, for, it's going to take uh, a radicalism that we haven't seen since the... Uh, establishment of the NHS for a government mm. to come in and go we're going to build affordable housing for the majority of people in this country mm. or put the kind of restrictions on landlords charging the rent they charge they'll, they'll never do that they won't do it well, they yeah, know. I mean obviously Labour tried to sort of uh, balance it up by giving out loads of housing benefit but again that's not sustainable is it no. just paying these massive rents it's just the government paying landlords isn't it um, final postcode which I don't know the postcode so you'll be able to tell me your voxel Vauxhall is also SW8. It's right. the and then you cross the bridge. Oh, Vauxhall and Yeah, then, then, you, then, you, then you get into uh, SW1. SW1. Where I'd love to live. Uh, there, there, there's a, a block. That, my favourite spot this side of the river is probably William Henry Walk. It's a spot on the um, Nine Elms Embankment um, that overlooks the river. And on the other side of the river are these riverside apartments and. Uh, 1989, I, I believe the world was mine. I made a, a promise to my mum I would retire by the time I was 22. Uh, a novel that is still unfinished. And uh, we were going to move to these riverside apartments and every now and then, maybe once a week actually, I just mm. walk to William Henry Walk and I look out and I, I look at this thing and I think, am I going to get there now? And, you know, probably not, but I enjoy that moment. You know, I enjoy that. Uh, I enjoy that moment. Um, Vauxhall, Nine Elms Lane, you know, a couple of years ago when I was trying to stay, take stock of things and, you know, at real crossroads and picking up the pieces after, you know, quite a few things went wrong, which were covered in the letter. I had this walk that I would do every day from my place in Stockwell and I would walk all the way down Lansdowne Way, Wandsworth Road, all the way up Nine Elms Lane, lap Battersea Park and come back up. And, you know, Nine Elms Lane, even now, it's still a really strange area. It's very, very quiet. There are some mm, buildings is, that, yeah. you know, you've got the Batsy Barge as well, which... Yeah, yeah. Uh, is, it where, is that where uh, the uh, post office is? The post across office? Across the road, yeah. yeah. Right, got, okay. I think it's Kringle Street and it's, uh, that, that leads to the power station and, uh, you know, you think, you know, grew up right by the river. You know, I, I, I was spoiled in a sense, you know, growing up in SW9, you know, I never had to take the overground. Everything was the tube, even though we're poorly served by the tube, on, you know, in South London. That part of South London, you could still get the Northern Line into Central London. We had, you know, buses that could get you to Downing Street in like ten, fifteen minutes. Um, but yeah, Vauxhall, Vauxhall for me was every time I go through Vauxhall and I'm standing at the bridge. It reminds me the first time I went over that bridge that I remember and saw the river. I was six years old, 1978, 118 bus. You know, with my mum, she would she she was doing these cleaning jobs in Belgravia, and you know, even now that river, you know, just still. You think, yeah, this is for me what it means th to be in London. This, you know, they can change, they they can push us out, but you know that river's always going to be there. It's uh, yeah, that's the thing. Like they can transform riverside apartments, they can yeah. transform areas, 
but the rivers are constant, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's I mean, don't sh- give them ideas. It's like Northern <laughs> Ireland. Like, yeah. I mean, this is. Yeah. Vauxhall would be a nice place to live. I've always kind of fancied that. See, I've not. It's one. My thing about places I would live in London is, if I'm not familiar with them from visiting them often, then they've got no appeal for me. So, like yeah. Vauxhall, I can sort of see the the thing of you know it'd be easier for me to get to work, it'd be nice to be near the river, but I have no. It doesn't mean anything to me as a place. This Vauxhall seems like somewhere that they maybe attempted to uh, appropriate. You know them. But it's just, there's not really any reason to go there, is there? No, It's a yeah. trouble. Will there ever be shops there? Yeah, I can't, I find it hard to visualise as well. Like you say, unless you're going to the, um, uh, what's it called, chariots, is it? It's not called chariots, is it? <laughs> there is a chariots there. There's is that a, what it's called? Uh, yeah. there's, a, there's a pissoir without taps as well, which I just don't get. It's, it's you know, you've built the whole thing in the middle of the road. At least, you know, one, one sink wouldn't have killed you. It's, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not keen on that, on the pissoir, to be honest. You probably don't mind, Steve. Do I mean, you know, it's not enough for me to think I'll live there. <laughs> <laughs> so, Daniel, turn into your work now. It is work that is informed by the places that we've been talking about, the places that you've lived, the places you grew up, the places you've worked, the people you've met. Yeah, I think um, with the last four or five years, the work's changed a lot. I've actually become far less commercial really uh, which I think has impacted on my ability to sell my work but I'm much more comfortable with what I'm writing and you know what I'm writing about and I think I'm writing not obviously I'd love to make money I think everyone wants to make money but I think I'm, I'm writing with a bit of a social conscience now um, I'm aware that there are you know many people affected by the situations that are affecting me and uh, particularly uh, South Lambeth, I kind of hold myself up there really and uh, I think from very early on I felt if I was going to come back as a writer, if I was going to get my life back together it was going to be from there, I was going to build from there and I was going to I was going to try and come back, I think you come, you know when you when you hit a bit of a wall you will come back slower I don't think you can kid yourself that you're ever going to be the same again but you can come back a, a better person, a wiser person, I think the last few years made me a man, it's just um, you know the recession's been one of the biggest things that ever happened to me it's like you know when I was a kid and I think we had the recession in the early 80s and you didn't have a clue how it was affecting your parents you know and I remember Mm. my dad being self-employed and being in and out of work and you you have no understanding of it and suddenly to be caught up in the same thing and I would speak to guys from my dad's generation and they would tell me well it's actually worse for you guys the 80s what the early 80s wasn't that bad but you think yeah but we have the internet we can you know we we don't have to go and start knocking on doors give us a job we we can do everything on the internet we don't even have to leave home to try and find find work um get on your bike yeah <laughs> yeah top, i think topical. You, you said on uh, one of the podcasts that you'd applied for like 400 jobs I, in, in a burst, essentially, because yeah. you've got internet access, you can do that. I had uh, I had a strange uh, experience. The, la- the last big moment I had as a writer was uh, selling my show to Channel 4, and within a year, I was signing on next to Channel 4, and uh, having a conversation with this guy at the Dole office. I'd printed off, I think, I think I turned up with 276 job applications from a fortnight, and he looked at me like I wasn't well, which maybe I wasn't. <laughs> but I just thought, if I'm going to do this, yeah. I'm going to do it properly. I'm going to do it honestly. He said, you only have to bring in three jobs, Mr. Ruiz. 
<laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, that was just, uh, it, it, it was a bewildering time, but I, was, I, I you know, if I wrote my way through it and uh, podcasting was a, was a big part of it. Um, to be honest, I, I just wanted to make a podcast that was funny and it took me two years because I, I said to you guys before we started recording this that editing was one of the hardest things I've ever learned how to do. I'm not very savvy when it comes to technical stuff. And I was actually meeting with people, trying to find editors, and not realizing really that you needed control over your own work. That mm-hmm. to learn how to edit would give you, you know, control over your your podcast. The idea was to do uh, a funny podcast. Um, by then, I was losing writing commissions. You know, every other month, I lost uh, I lost my agent. I lost the uh, Channel Four show, and to try and compensate for that, I was signing up to projects which I knew I wasn't their kind of writer I wasn't what they were looking for I was being sent on writing seminars and I don't have a very scientific mind you know I write instinctively and which may or may not be a good thing but when you're giving me a book and telling me you've got to tick these you know plot points mm. you've got to do this and that I, I've really started to lose my love for writing yeah so I, start, I don't think yeah. that really is the way to do it is it you see no. those sort of academic screenwriting books I don't yeah. think Charlie Kaufman we well, did I mean that's the whole point of adaptation <laughs> but you know this but go on, I was just talking I was about with things like that though you sort of you look at who's written these books mm. and you go why, why aren't you on IMDb <laughs> you're telling me how to write a film but you don't seem to have written any films you, you know film. the best uh, book about screenwriting is eventually a screenshot by William Goldman and the one bit of advice he gives is that no one knows anything that's the best <laughs> thing you can realise about writing you know it's an art isn't it you know it, the idea that there's a formula and you know you can turn it into a formula but then what you're going to produce is formulaic and yeah. eventually it's going to be rubbish. You can you get like three or four maybe pieces out of it, but you've only got, you know, one framework to work from, one pattern, one set yeah, of tricks. Yeah, I mean, nothing groundbreaking is coming from that, is it? No. When I was about, uh, when did Holly Valance Kiss Kiss come out, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> 20, when I was 20, I suppose. And uh, my mum made me go to the job centre because I didn't really, I've never... Was ran... it linked to the release of Kiss Kiss by Holly Valance? Yeah, because she was I, like, "This is this is it." it She's doing it is that. linked. So it came with a free post, I remember. But no, my mum made me go to the job centre because I was quite a blase attitude to get in a job because I was doing like trying to make films and stuff. And uh, I went to the Campbell Green job centre, and I couldn't just couldn't bring myself to go in. Like, I wasn't going to sign on. I was just going to I don't know find See if a there job. Are any jobs around yeah, because my mum had sort of said I had to, and I was at the age where you do what your parents say still. So I got on the bus to Victoria. I was like, I've got to go to one in a nice area. And I went to that, that job centre next door to Channel 4. Yeah. It know, is I, nice. It is a nice job centre. Yeah, I mean, yeah. of all, you know, you go down the Stratton Ground, you know, it's quite a pleasant little... So your uh, idea was that they, they, they'd have better jobs? No, they, they, I don't have to go then. It's not the queue out the door of, like, people that kind of... Some of them look quite scary. You go to there, there's no one there. Just walk <laughs> in, you see someone pretty quickly... You sort of walk past Channel Four. You, I think I saw maybe a celebrity coming out one of the one of the three times I went. But then I went up to Victoria Station to the Our Price or whatever it was then V Shop maybe, and got a Holly Valance Kiss Kiss single because it had a free poster. Right. Um. <laughs> you, you make me almost want to sign on again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just looking at your uh, blog. Oof. Oh well, yeah, there's... <laughs> I mean, if you can pronounce it, we'll say it. But if you can't, we won't. It, it, it looks like initially your, your blog posts are blog posts, yeah. and and that seems to sort of be sort of doing preparation work for stand up. 
and you sort of you take those ideas and then perform them as, as stand-up. I was uh, probably 10, 12 years ago, I, I had a period of money coming in the way I would uh, basically uh, finance my writing projects, the, the writing I wanted to do. I was a football journalist. Uh, one of the magazines I was working for was 442, and one of the editors on there set up, uh, was always involved in setting up Sabotage Times with James Brown, the uh, guy behind guy. Loaded. Yeah. And uh, he approached me to write some stuff for them, and I thought it was going to be football stuff, and I thought, I don't really want to write any more football. I'd become disillusioned with you know, flying out and doing interviews that weren't exclusives. I, I wanted to write the kind of stuff that I wanted to read as, a, as, a, as, as, as you know, someone who loved reading about football, but the days of the exclusives were over. You know, the media officers were coming in, clubs were... Well, this, the game has changed as well, hasn't it? Has, it? Yeah. That's the other thing. You know, so, and I thought, no, I don't want to do this. I, and he said, no, I, I don't want you to write about football. I want you to write about some of the stuff that I've seen you writing about. And that, that, changed, that changed my style of writing. I started... I suppose you could say it's a bit self-indulgent, but um, I just started to, um, I didn't want to be afraid of what was in my head anymore, you know. Um, and two or three years later, I faced a big battle to try and go through a lot of posts and I removed probably about 300. It was affecting me getting work, you know, as a writer or otherwise, you know, I was in no position, I, you know, if, if, if the things that had happened had happened five or six years ago when I was in a strong position as a writer, it, it wouldn't have mattered. I'd have been able to come out and, you know, I get a call from a, a mental health charity. Do you want to do a stand-up gig? You know, do you, do, you, do you want to MC this? Yeah, I'll do it. But, you know, it's that fear of being associated with, with those kind of things because there is a stigma, and that stigma was keeping me out of work. Uh, I was losing a lot of work. Um, you know, friends, a lot of friends didn't understand what was going on. I didn't really understand what was going on. The blog... The writing, I mean, I was writing like a demon. I was writing some very strange stuff, but it was it was helping me. It was just, I'd never written that way before. And, you know, some of it, looking back, wasn't very good, but but it all served a purpose on a, on a daily basis of trying to get me to feel better, you know, and trying to get me to, to regain my, my dignity and my self-respect. And it was a, it was a long process and, uh, you know, not everyone's cup of tea. And then, you, you know, a year passes and you think, okay, I've got to go in there and, remove some of this stuff I'm not there anymore but what I've tried to do lately is think well you know this was what what, what happened you know it's it happened you know it's it's made me what I am today as, as, as a writer as a person and it, it, it's there I can't do anything about it too many people have listened to the shows too many people have read that stuff to to be able to say oh that wasn't me it was me but the style of writing is it's very uh, natural there's a real sort of from the way you're talking about how he wrote it, it does have a feel of like stream of consciousness to it. It's very yeah. sort of, there's a real sort of flow to it. And you know, from looking at like the timestamps, you can see there were days where you'd post like four or five smaller pieces, but clearly just like you'd have a moment of inspiration and yeah. just want to capture it. And I think it's, you know, I, you know, looking at your work, I was saying to Jack earlier, I think you've just embraced the internet so well in terms of as a, as a way of, of showcasing, but also developing process you know you've sort of you know put things out there and then gone back and analyzed them as you say you've taken things down that you're not you know not as happy with and by doing that and then looking at them in different forms so you know the blog posts and then some of the stuff that emerges there turns up in the stand-up and then turns up in the podcast i um i i, I was in a sublet in peckham last year uh for three months one of the best things i ever did a real a real turning point for me and uh 
strangely became obsessed with James Brown, specifically late sixties to mid seventies James Brown. One of the things that yeah, interest- loaded. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that I'm fascinated by in regards to James Brown is he did just that with his music. You hear riffs and he, you know, bits of because uh, you know it, it, there weren't that many lyrics in a James Brown song, but you could see, you know. For three or four years, you're kind of hearing something. And then, you know, four or five years later, he's turning it into something bigger. And that really does fascinate me as a writer. So I don't mind doing that. I don't think I was aware that I was doing that at the time. Well, that wasn't the intention. But now uh, I quite like that style of working. So everything, you know, may be a work in progress. Something may be part of something bigger. I'm not afraid to, to go out and, and try those things. I think it, I think it is a, it's a good way of working. It is very hard, I'm sure, as you guys know, to, to keep tabs on or to control your work on the internet. It's a great outlet. It's it's a great way to be discovered, but you've also got to make sure that your, your work's not appearing on everywhere. Um, we don't have that problem. We don't have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of podcasts, the first one you did was Please Don't Hug Me. Yeah, a show uh, essentially created on Twitter, really. I mean, it's just... Uh, Think as a creator, you would wish that you, you wish that Twitter was around 10, 15 years ago. It is a, it is incredible to, and that that was the first experience of having people contact you from around the world. You're thinking, well, this is this is incredible. It was a strange show in that the first ever show was recorded uh, from my flat next to the cafe uh, at the bottom of an alleyway, and I was moving out that week, and it was a beautiful, you know, beautiful summer's evening. I was feeling really um, optimistic about the future. I was really excited for the first time in my life. Well, for, not for the first time in my life. <laughs> I was uh, really excited for the first time in, in a long time. You know, it'd been a, it'd been a very difficult period. Um, summer of 2010, uh, really sunny evening. We recorded the uh, first show, surrounded by boxes. Um, I was meant to be moving in with my then girlfriend, and that had been uh, uh, our plans had been thrown into disarray by a fire at her family's house and uh, so I made probably the worst decision of my life to move into a hotel but at that time I thought I was going on an adventure uh, genuinely and uh, but also uh, as you've said uh, ducking landlords you know you're not yeah, dealing with tenancy yeah. agreements and contracts and, and it wouldn't be the last time in spite of the uh, terrible experience it was that I actually considered retreating to a hotel it, honestly it's uh, there's always that little part of me that loves the idea of living out of a bag and even last summer I gave away I think I had 600 books I gave them to the local library just thinking you know it, it, it is so difficult finding accommodation that I, I've got too much I've really got mm. to accept that I, I can't be carrying around all this stuff with me so I recorded uh, Please Don't Hug Me um, with my co-host and uh, you know old school friend uh, Mickey Boyd uh, quickly realising the bulk of the work was going to be my end but uh <laughs> You know, he's a, he's a very funny guy. It was, it was a very enjoyable experience. But from week two, I think we were recording in the hotel, which was just very, very strange. And yet the commitment to getting out the podcast every week, uh, it was just, it became wrongly the most important thing in my life. And uh, there was no Wi-Fi connection in the hotel unless I went to the basement I'd be down there till about one in the morning trying to get it uploaded onto Jellycast and then you get into grips with iTunes and how iTunes works and it was all very raw and uh, in the end that show rather than 
it was it was you know it was it was a funny show, but it also for me looking back, it documented the slide, the mistakes, and the bad decisions I was making. And you know, by Christmas, I lost uh, you know I lost a girlfriend, and that I think more than anything kickstarted all the blog posts that you referred to earlier. You know, trying to process it uh, probably a little too publicly for my, for my own good. But uh, you know, it's there. It's a show. It's what I did. It's a it's a, it's that uh, autumn particularly was a very difficult period I you know to, to try and get some money and after all the writing contracts were drying up I went into a job and uh, that job ended and I was out of work for six weeks and uh, it was just probably the most difficult period I've, I've ever had and to be holed up in a hotel going through there but I think there were the, there were some really good moments in those shows and I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of them but it certainly it became a very different show to what we originally intended um, I think the contrast between yourself and Mickey in terms of approach and, and tone. I mean, you know, you made it very clear that uh, he wasn't. You know, he made it very clear he wasn't prepared to prepare unless he was getting paid, <laughs> and he wasn't going to get paid, so he wasn't going to prepare. But then, out of that, almost organically, you get uh, the sort of Q and A section where it's almost the fact that he is not prepared to prepare means it, you know his sort of counterbalance that was I'll be very honest, I'll be very open, and it, it really sort of works. I mean. You know, knowing it is uh, recorded in the hotel, I think there is there is an odd tone to it. It does feel like the you know you're in a sort of a limbo. You're you're away, from, and that that possibly helped in terms of the tone of the show. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it. I think it did. I mean, uh, it became about being in the hotel. Yeah. I think essentially, yeah. um, and I didn't really understand what was. Uh, going on in my life, what was happening to people who were losing jobs and, you know, who were seeing their lives change. I didn't really understand much of what was going on. I just knew that I was absolutely bewildered and overwhelmed by what was going on, but I was going to make sure I got that show out every week. And uh, it was also important in that Mickey Boyd was the one person who would come there every week. You know, he was the only one who saw me living like that. And uh, he also bench-pressed me, I think, in week three of the show in the, in the in the hotel room genuinely bench pressed me while I held the Blackberry which uh, <laughs> was very very emasculating um, but you know there's not a lot of shows that are doing that we've tried it and like you know that's how Jack hurt his hands, man. Hurt his hands. but yeah uh, you know as that show went on you then start to do uh, the Daniel Ruiz Tyson show which is yeah. very much you know you and you know you can see the, the seeds of what is to come in terms of the focus yeah I, th- I, I mean that was probably a very negative show Thing. And, and when you when you when you're down in the dumps and you're talking about it, you attract a certain kind of listener as well. And uh, there are a few of those shows that I've revisited and thought, yeah, that 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 is, that is actually a very good episode. I think there's an episode, episode forty six or forty seven North, where I went up to see someone in Leeds, and I wrote about going up north. And uh, I think that's one of the strongest podcasts I ever did. But at the, at, at that particular time, the Daniel Rose Tyson podcast, I you know. Again, it seems very self-indulgent, but to, you know, to you have to be honest about where you were in your life. And I hadn't stopped when things had gone wrong, and I was going into a hospital every week, and uh, I was talking things through to a counsellor for a year, and also on the show. You know, so it was just—it really was all about me. Which uh, you know, it's only two or three years ago, but I was just obsessed with trying to understand what was going on. And uh, once you start moving away from that, you think, okay, well, this is out there and this has been downloaded. <laughs> what do I do about this? How do I, how do I, how do I stop this? From, you know, hmm. from, from 
going out even more. It's you, you become slightly embarrassed by it, but it's it's there now. I'm you know I'm comfortable with it. It's you know that's where I was. That's how I dealt with things. And uh, yeah. I think that's the strength of um, of your output, though. You know, I've, I've not uh, I've only listened to a couple of episodes of Please Don't Hug Me, but um, say the I've not and the interim podcast I'm looking forward to. But there's so much of Daniel Ruiz Tyson is available that I've. Uh, I've listened to, but I've, Steve will tell you I've been listening to like three or four a day yeah. for sort of since the turn of the year, and like the strength of it is that uh, that you just like this is my. I, at first, I I thought it was, I thought it was, I thought how much of this is I thought it's fictional, like mostly fictional. You know, time for a quick nectar points update. I'm like this is not real, is it? I'm like, I mean, this is real, and it's like basically outsider art. Do you know what I mean? It's, like you, you once mentioned about uh, being a low, a low quality podcast by someone, not about your own podcast, but something else. Said so this, you were making a joke about it sounded like a kind of uh, badly recorded podcast by someone who's not right or something, something like that. Yeah, and uh, and that's what it does sound like at first. But then obviously, like as you get into it, the kind of re- like the sort of repetition and stuff, you know, the kind of uh, deliberate banal, not banal, is that the right word? Well, no, it's it's the the kind of tedious. It's the minutia, kind of, isn't it? This yeah, is, exactly. It's very much. It's about everyday existence. So what you write about and what you talk about is, you know, you what you hear on the bus, you know, you your weekly shop, what it consists of. But within that, you do extract comedy, and you do, and it, you know, that's it's you know a very specific kind of observational comedy, but informed by your personality, and that's the the key to it, you know. Yeah, definitely. There's also, your voice. Yeah, your particular as a, voice. Not literally, literally and as a writer. Yeah, no, both literally. Things. I mean, you know, that's what the first thing I think that struck me about the show. You know, the first comment we ever got about the show was from a cousin who described it on iTunes as uh, two very easy to listen to voices. I didn't know what he meant by that. But then I listened to your show and it was, there is something, you have an excellent tone, an excellent delivery. And clearly, you know, you, there's a performative aspect to your work. But, it is so compelling to listen to. And, you know, I think the thing is, if you gave the framework, and this is what we were talking about earlier in terms of the, the weakness of writing by, you know, pattern or framework, if you gave your material to someone else, it doesn't work. It's, it is the, you know, Daniel Ruiz. Yeah, it's the, it's it the... has to be you uh, delivering it. Yeah, so I almost didn't understand why I was listening to so many. Like it's finished, <laughs> and I put another one on. And you, and do you know what I mean? At first, I was, I was just like, this is an odd phenomenon. I'm just like, better listen to another one now. But uh, I think the output on my part is partly as well. You think because I was because you know the last year has been really good, the best out of the last five six years. You know, I feel like I'm, I'm I'm back on my feet, and you know there are reasons to be positive. Previous to that, I think it was about okay, the writing career commercially is dead. I've got to do something. I've got to do something that makes me feel like I'm, I'm still here, that people know about me. Yet when I was I'm selling, available. <laughs> when, when I was doing the work, when I was being paid for it, nobody knew me because I was just a writer. I was happy to be just a writer. I'd go back to being just a writer again tomorrow, you know, if I could, if I, if I could earn a living from it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm very... Anal. I'm trying to be less anal in my real life, but I think as a writer, it, it works. It serves a, a purpose. Mm. But but there's also a battle to distinguish between the real you and, and the podcast you, and, and and it is difficult. It's a it's it's a regular battle to find that line for me. I've never quite 
you know, I've never conclusively proved to myself that I know where that line is. But I think, I think you referred to the interim podcast mm. uh, a few minutes ago. That was an important show for me because I made a conscious decision to be a bit more positive in that and to try out new things. Yeah. And that gave birth to Daniel Ruiz Tyson is available. But, um, you know, it's just the thing about struggling is it is funny when you commit it to paper um you know what what, what you, you think how much lower can i go well you know just a few months ago the uh the actor who was the lead actor in the channel 4 pilot that i did turns up at the place i live at at a party and i'm turning up not knowing who he is and i've got a bag full of basics range goods and he, he's at a party his career's going brilliantly and he's a very good actor and i'm asking him to move out of the way so i can you know stick all my cheap goods in there and i'm thinking <laughs> you know what i should have been working with you you you're earning a, a lot of money now, and deservedly so, but I am as good or better than any of the writers that you're working with. But, you know, here I am with my 37p strawberry jam, which I'm <laughs> going to enjoy. You know? <laughs> One of the, um, what you're saying about sort of dividing the line, uh, finding the line between like the fictional and the real you. I mean, I, I said to Steve, I said, can you ask him if we're going to be interviewing in character or not? <laughs> and now I've got the deeper you get into it, the kind of more you, you sort of see that it's... Uh, I mean, it's like it's a bit like Seinfeld, I suppose, isn't it? But yeah, I'm thinking what we would advise people to listen to first. I feel almost ashamed that people, some people, will hear this first because it's <laughs> it's such a great show to just go in cold and just sort of listen and trying to work Find your way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the, say the brace period, right, as it's known, uh, <laughs> is on. Uh, that's the stuff on iTunes, isn't it? If you type yeah. Daniel Ruiz Tyson, yeah. it's available into iTunes and just download the twenty or about twenty, is it fifteen? Yeah, I think I think all there are about forty-five shows. There's only about ten on iTunes. Uh, yeah, last... maybe about, about thirteen, fourteen, maybe however many it is. Yeah. Get the ones off iTunes, the brace period, because certainly there'll be some people that would listen to it and won't like it because it's yeah. it very much uh, will divide people, I imagine. But that set of that's where I started with those. Uh, I think it's about fifteen shows, maybe it's ten. Um, it's a great place to start. And, you know, um, I feel like you've also honed, you really honed uh, the show uh, uh, to that point where, you know, there's a lot more contributors um, in the in the early ones, isn't there? Yeah. And, in, and obviously, Please Don't Hug Me, there's a co-host. But I think it really works well where it's just you and less from, even having a little bit less from the listeners, where you're sort of thinking, are these people, is this a real person, this listener? Well, also early on as well, you know, your format was based around a lot of concepts and ideas and regular features. And a lot of that relied on people tweeting in and people, you know, asking questions and getting yeah. involved. And, you know, that has its value. But what I liked particularly about uh, Is Available is you had regular features, but they're all very much yours and about you. And I think that sort of yeah. gives it a I wanna, sort of Yeah, exactly. I want to know about your shopping. I want to know what you think about, you know, people putting stuff on the ground in the street. <laughs> I want to know what the kids said this week. You know what I mean? That's that is such a strong feature in yeah, Steve, yeah. and uh, extremely intimate conversations overheard and then publicised, which I may have got slightly wrong. The kid, the kid would be, uh, he would be very happy to hear you even mention his name every week when I was doing the show. He'd come up to me on the Monday, you know, um, how the show go, any donations. Oh, he knows about the show. Oh yeah, yeah. And then I knew what was coming. But uh, did anyone say anything about the kid? He's listened to it as well. He's on it once, Steve. Yeah. This oh, is right. the thing. I was almost disappointed yeah. to hear him because obviously yeah, I did yeah. listen to the brace period. I yeah. went back to the beginning, and then you're like, ah, oh, the kid. I don't want to yeah. hear. I didn't know. I wasn't hundred percent. This is. This is. I think uh, the value of you as a performer. 
that particular uh, section, which is just a colleague at work who has said things to you that on the surface are things that people say to one another, but your particular phrasing and obviously selection of... And also, let's give the kids some credit. He comes out, <laughs> he comes out with some cracking stuff. Sure. But it's also very much about your personality. You know, it is similar to the early stuff with, with Mickey Boyd. And any sort of like contrast between elements in any uh, artistic setting, it's not just the fact that this kid's saying these things, it's that he's saying them to you. And it's you know, pretty much all the time, the last thing you want to hear, the last thing you want to be involved with is what this kid's got to say to you. I, I just love funny people. I mean, I want to, you, you've mentioned Seinfeld. Uh, I thought one of Seinfeld's greatest strengths, Jerry Seinfeld's greatest strengths, was as a producer, he wasn't afraid to let the mm. people around him you know, be funny and have their turn in the limelight and even steal the limelight. And I think there's a strength in recognising the people around you that are funny. So, well, you know, this guy, you know, he makes me laugh. Not many people make me laugh. I think other people should hear him. You know, you, 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 you turn up for work on a Monday morning and, and he stops you and he says, you know, do you want to see a picture of me wearing hair product in Morocco? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> As the show is on hiatus at the moment, what are the chances of us getting a sort of uh, exclusive things the kids said? <laughs> can we can we get one thing the kids said this week? It's the first anniversary of him and uh, Midnight uh, Blue, uh, and. For those who are aware of the history of him and Midnight Blue, there was a prolonged period where he wasn't going to date her because she had a very bad breath, which has made it awkward now because obviously he's getting closer to her and you have to kind of forget that he was very disparaging about her her, her breath uh, originally. But he did say, it was like, uh, I think he once said to me, it was like, it's like walking past a rubbish dump. you just got to get used to the smell. So I'm assuming <laughs> it may still be an issue. Uh, but no, I, I, I can't remember, unfortunately, I can't remember any specifics. But uh, he has been, uh, he's been working on his back a lot. His back is uh, looking extremely muscular, and I'm not sure what purpose that serves. But his, his, <laughs> I know his girlfriend is enjoying the back. <laughs> Is she paying for the hotel yet, or is that still an issue? She's uh, she's not paying for for many things. Um, he, <laughs> Poor kid. Uh, he's. I think when I last left the show, he'd uh, he'd gone to Harley Street to look into a hair transplant. Uh, oh, yeah, he's of course, got some, yeah. some liquid, and it's been very effective. But because he's been paying for the hotels, uh, he's not been able to pay for the latest uh, uh, hair Batch. liquid. Yeah, so a bit of a problem. Because um, he wanted to get to month seven, didn't he? That was the idea. Yes, yeah, month the, seven. The dream. Month seven. Um, but, uh, it can only be a few months in. I'm worried. I'm worried <laughs> about him now. The back's looking great, but what if people keep looking up? Am I going bald, Daniel? <laughs> <laughs> there was a guy. There, there was an old uh, sports shop in Brixton, Frank Johnson's. Um, mm. There was a guy in there who had one of the very first hair transplants. You, had a, you know, the tiny tears kind of look. It was really strange. <laughs> You'd go in there and buy a Sabucho team and. Sometimes you, you know you'd buy a team you already had. You just wanted to see the scalp. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of um, even older than me as well. Yeah, yeah, he's uh... nice down. This is as low as I go. <laughs> I was like, I was listening to that that particular uh, that particular bit, just walking past uh, Max Roach Park on Brixton Road, and just like holding my stomach with laughter. Great stuff. <laughs> Your most recent work is uh, The Letter on Resonance FM, which uh, Owen Pomery, regular listeners will know, uh, 
Drew Our logo. Uh, said he listened to all six of them back to back in one three hour go. And he was as flawed as uh, certainly I was. Steve, big fan too. Um, it's a kind of formal. Well, I guess you could tell us what it is. But it is uh, it's, it's a six part radio series, half an hour each. Letters to uh, various people and places, and uh, it sort of draws on everything you've done uh, podcast wise, and sort of it's a more kind of maybe formal version of of that stuff. I got. Uh, I was taking a few weeks off back in the summer to finish my first novel, and uh, so I was trying to focus on that. I wasn't convinced that I I would be able to do it because it's one thing writing two hours a day is another thing when you you've got a whole day before you and you know you can do eight ten hours and it was quite daunting and I was struggling with that. And the day before the break, uh, the, the station got in touch with me to say they'd commissioned the series I'd originally pitched, which was all about my dad, and I tried to write that I think on the third week of my break I started that and it wasn't working would this I, have been in the A to Z format yeah, yeah yeah it just wasn't working I had to you know uh, and I just thought very quickly I'm in trouble here you know this this isn't working and very quickly I don't think I've ever had an idea that felt right more quickly than the letter it was just simply a few a few lines one one morning on a notepad and I thought yeah this is the idea but then it was a choice about, I'd made such a concerted effort over the previous year, 18 months, to start deleting a lot of the work that I'd written, um, you know, the, the work that was of a more personal nature. And so that, that, that was a big problem for me. I was thinking, well, I'm going back to what I was trying to move away from. But in the end, I just thought, you know, I'm going to write it. It's, if people have a problem with it, there's nothing I can do. You know, I've changed uh, most people's names except for Mickey Boyd, who, who, who uh, would only agree to have been involved if I used his proper name, <laughs> his real name, the ego. Yeah. Um, I thought he was fictional for a while. I thought you had written, Mickey gotten Boyd a guy in and written for him. He's all too real. Yeah, he is, yeah, he's very much real. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of weird because, uh, you know, it was the hardest thing I've ever worked on. You know, when, when you're selling work, when you're, you're part of something, you are the biggest part of something, but there are people around you. There is a producer, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a casting director there was an agent handling the money side of things um there was none of that it was just me and with a very tight deadline and for three months i worked 18 hour days and it was just uh, you know physically there was a price to pay for that and weeks three and four i thought if i get to weeks three and four on this i will crack this i'll break the back of this project and it was daunting it was difficult going into the studio every week with actors no one ever asked me about the script. None of the people I worked with asked me about the content, and that was it was it was kind of awkward initially. But then I thought, well, it's here. If people want to ask me about it, they can ask me about it. It's I assume they're here because they really enjoyed it and they want to be a part of it. But you have to to be there and to to be facing people who are reading your words and you know face to face. You know, very different. Obviously, listeners, you're not going to see them, but to be working with people reading this stuff out in front of a microphone that's very personal was a was a big step and uh, but it got done and it's got a good response i was just confident that if i could get it to the right people you know there was a there was a miranda sawyer reviewed it in the observer i've been trying to get to miranda sawyer for about three years it's not is she's southwest london she's uh, she's brixton yeah as i say yeah and, and that's that's you know south of the river that's important there's not many big media commentators south of the river yeah. you know that that's an important thing when you're trying to do work south of the river and um that for me 
basically justified it physically i couldn't justify justified it was it was ridiculous it was it was i was really up against it every week but i i you know i knew the story i wanted to tell and i just thought i've got to be honest if i'm going to do this it's got to be um it's got to be honest and uh yeah i i uh, I did it, and uh, you know I'm I'm proud of it. But uh, obviously, I think maybe people who know me might be listening to it and you think, well, this I don't know how they're going to react. But you just, as a writer, as a as a performer, you just got to be faithful to your to your idea. And it's kind of weird, it's full circle, you know, from trying to get away from everything that happened. But I, I think I was able to do it because things were better, you know. And I just want to be honest. This is my story. I'm a I'm a 41 year old man living like a man half his age you know I've got no family I've got no kids I accrue nectar points very slowly I'm badly dressed as you can see uh, he's not badly dressed uh, <laughs> you know it's he's it's, better dressed than Steve <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's 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 what it is it's 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 made me grow up it's made me care about uh, community it's made me care about the issues we've we've talked about tonight social housing it's 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 made me think a lot about where I'm going. It's trying to come up with a long-term plan to, 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 to get out of this and to try and... I, I knew that I... Uh, the one thing it's shown me is it said, okay, I haven't made any money from this, but I have shown you that I can write. You know, this is, this is what I can do. And it's given me, you know, if it never happens again, I've shown, that I can, I've shown myself that I can do something of this caliber better than anything I got paid for on TV. Um, I think the project is testament to you as a writer in two very distinct ways in that the piece itself, the, the, the writing, the script, is tremendous. And just the fact that, you know, it never occurred to me, the way you talk about the concept coming to you so naturally, the fact that, you know, you've got that capacity to have an idea because the structure of it and, you know, the way it's presented is remarkable. Mm. It is, you know, uh, you know, you're saying better than anything you were paid to. It's better than, you know... Yeah, it stands on its own. It's, it's a difficult... It's... Like, I really want to stress this, like, to you and to the listeners. That, like, obviously, sometimes you listen to things and you've come across... Maybe you don't know them in real life, but you've come across them on Twitter and, you know, whether it's music or whatever, and you kind of judge it from sort of not knowing them, but with qualifications of, like, uh, you know, about your ideas about professionalism or whatever. Um, being professional, I should say. But this, I mean, it stands up as a work of fiction, not a, well, I say work of fiction, or whatever it is, as a, a piece, work, a as piece, a work, yeah, yeah against anything. Yeah. Like, it's brilliant. And it's not just like, um, you don't oh, you know, it's, it. yeah, exactly. It's not a case of, it. it's good for something that's going mm. on. It's good for, it's just good. It just yeah. has absolute quality to it. Like you were saying about the structure as well, Steve. Like, you know, it starts off um, kind of quite similar to the podcast where it's very, um, it's, it's, funny in a similar way but then as it goes along i think is it is the episode four the, the letter to lopez yeah yeah it kind of takes a bit of a turn um and it becomes a lot uh, a lot more emotionally in, uh, becomes quite moving and like as, as i was saying on twitter you know episode five where the letter to your mother is just like i was i was on the bus and i was like close to tears and i had to you know when you have to stop for a minute and uh yeah i mean it's just a brilliant piece and you know i've really i I put it on facebook and on twitter a couple of times and like can you just people go and listen to this and i don't i don't want people to think oh it's because he's coming on the show just please listen to it do you know what i mean (laughs) this is the trouble with audio but i do appreciate it because it you know it does make a difference unfortunately the thing with the internet is people do need 
to be championed, and it you know it's it, it has made a difference uh, this week. So I'm you know uh, immensely appreciative of that. And uh, the thing about you know South London is, uh, and you know without knowing entirely uh, your background, you know certainly in my case like being working class, and also in my case being the son of immigrants, you it is very difficult to open the right doors. And I only got as far as I did in TV because. I had a brilliant producer, she discovered Dennis Pennis, she discovered Annie G. I don't kid myself that I got to where I got before falling. I didn't get there on my talent. I got there because I knew one person. That one person opened those doors for me. She's no longer there now. I have to try and find a different way to open those doors, as, as I think we all do, and it is very difficult. It is. Um, so for me, it's like become, okay, well, rather than just write things, I need to make things, and that's what I want to do from now on. And it is daunting, but... To finish something for me as difficult as, as the letter has given me belief in, 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 in myself to, to manage a, a project uh, as big as that. Um, although, you know, obviously it's, it's kind of slipped under the radar, but it was a big thing. It was it was very difficult to to do and always very difficult to, to get people to work for you for free. It's not nice to ask people to do that. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm uh, appreciative of everyone who, who took part. But... Um, it's there. It was just. It was difficult afterwards, because the subject matter does stay with you, and you're thinking, "I'm trying to move away from this," and you know, it gets you thinking a bit more about those uh, um, people. But you know, it's the same for any writer. You know, everyone carries their, you know, carries their ghosts. And for me, I just wanted to write something. I wanted to write about a community uh, that, that maybe isn't there anymore. And um, you know, I can now look back and I can see the things where I went wrong. I can see my mistakes, and uh, someone has said to me many times we're only three or four decisions away from you know wrecking our lives and I probably made about eight or nine decisions and it's been a, a slow road back and, and you know podcasting has been a, an immense has, has taken an immense role in helping me come back and uh, you know I'm I don't watch much tv I'm obsessed with uh, podcasts you know I'm, I'm not convinced that I'm not one of your stalkers here tonight because I've been <laughs> listening to you I tend to if I get into something, I'll listen to four or five shows. Uh, like you were saying earlier, you just think, my, my, "This is the beauty of podcasting." But then you think, "Well, why aren't these shows on the radio, though?" You know, why? Yeah, it is. But it is, as you say, this is the thing. And for for all of us collectively, your work and our work, it does face a, a similar problem, as you say. You know, coming from South London and talking about South London, the way we talk about South London, this is not the conversation that broadcasters and media companies want to have. They don't want. They've got a very specific idea about South London. It serves them. It serves them for people to think about some stuff on a certain way and have it as, you know, I'd describe it as cultural shorthand. You know, you say, you, you know, the caption comes up on a screen with a, a South London place name and people are like, oh, right, it's a new crime drama. Good, this will be interesting. This will have, uh, you know, kids uh, being handed a gun and uh, going up to the... And you're like, you know, let's leave these tired ideas behind. But, you know, as I say, it's, it's cultural currency for them. It's money in the bank. They can rely on that. The last thing they need is to take risks on shows like The Letter, which has absolute value, but doesn't serve their narrative. Just to give the link again, just in case anyone's sitting at, they've just sat at their computer, uh, the, the Letter official blog.wordpress.com. Yeah, uh, that's it, yeah. To end on kind of a light note, right, you described Mickey Boyd as the Gaza of podcasting, right? I'll give you, we'll give you a second to think I, about I have to say having met you tonight I think you might be one of those uh, 
number 10 German Mavericks from the 70s. <laughs> because, you know, the fact that you edit this show does not tally with the person I've met tonight. I actually, <laughs> you know, it so, sounds more professional than he is. Is that what you're saying? No, it's just, uh, I, 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 I see a character here. I see, I see a, a sim, maybe a Gunter Netzer. You know? <laughs> I don't know who that is. I'm some, uh, slightly yeah, just yeah, mid seventies oh. German maverick. You know, probably smoked off the probably on the pitch. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I, I had I was going to use the word maverick. Interestingly, me and Steve when we listened to it, we were like, uh, Steve said, "Oh, go on, who did you say you were, Steve?" I did. I said I was Maradona. Didn't he I? said he's the Maradona, which I think because like, let me um, stocky, powerfully built. You know, not afraid to good with his hands. <laughs> Better than you. Um, you know, not afraid to uh, you know cut a few corners to get the job done. If I need to punch a goal in, I'll do it. It's fine. I was going to describe myself as the Lee Sharp of podcasting. I, I can see that too. In that I am a maverick, and it's not paid off. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yourself? That's put me on the spot. Speaking of on the spot, actually on the line, even. I mean, you'd have to be a goalkeeper, I suppose, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, Steve, Steve had uh, you down as a Jan Mulby, I think. Hope, hopefully, <laughs> without the weight. No, yeah, yeah, it was. It was purely uh, pre-prison Jan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was. Uh, it was the creativity, but also um, it was the. the What's fact- the, is it sedentary? Is that the right word? Don't imagine he moved about a lot. Well, he did no. move a lot, so that's not the right thing. But you're rooted in South Lambeth. Well, yeah. I imagine Jan Mulby was rooted to the centre spot. <laughs> but also, uh, his one of the things first listening to you was I got very confused about your accent. I had Jan's Australian for about the first few episodes. <laughs> How often that happens? A lot, <laughs> I imagine. Yeah, it happens. And a lot. I, I, that I time in Putney. Uh, it made me think of uh, Jan Mulby's famously fluctuating accent. Yeah. That, uh, so yeah, so I've got. And also, you're a Liverpool fan. I am. So yeah. I, I, that, that 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 kind of timestamps me. I think if go. I'd been born ten years later, I would have been a Man U fan. But the accent is, as a South Londoner, you, you meet certain people. You think, my God, am I saying my T's? Am I, you know, you feel very <laughs> self-conscious. So your, your accent does. Well, my accent does fluctuate. I'm very self-conscious about the way I speak, and also speak a little too fast, which is a Spanish thing. You know, they really do fire out their words. Yeah. But it's a great voice. This is yeah, the thing, it is, isn't it? It, it is just great. works a treat. So, uh, I don't know, Zuby Zaretta? <laughs> <laughs> I interviewed him once. He, oh, yeah? He gave me a great interview on how uh, the difference between basketball keepers and, and, and other Spanish keepers from other regions, but I completely forgot what it was. But uh, <laughs> a, very, a, a nicer man than he was a keeper, I think. I wasn't a big fan. I wasn't a big fan. I'm not a fan of Casillas either, you know? No, I don't like Casillas. No? No. He's no good for me. I don't, I don't like Real Madrid generally. I've got issues with... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, it's it's just a it's a, a massive symbol of uh, privilege and uh, corruption. Pepe Re- Pepe Reina. Of, uh... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one, one great year. Benitez's final year. One great year. Uh, I think they were right to to move him on. I think Peter Shilton was a a keeper I really loved as a kid. But I remember a story. I was about eight years old. He'd got caught in a car with his trousers down with someone else's wife. <laughs> By the husband, rather than stop and just you know face the grief, he continued to drive on and crash the car into a lamppost. You know, 
there, there would have been no chance of fixing things up with that woman afterwards. <laughs> you know, really, seriously, it's not, not very masculine, is it? You know, he'd, he'd have been better stepping out of the car and just taking a hiding. At the very, it would have looked better, you know, driving with the trousers down the ankle. Also, he was a big lad. I mean, you know, he's <laughs> a notorious gambler. Yeah, he did have a terrible habit, didn't he? Mm. But, I mean, he went to a World Cup in his late 30s, so yeah. late bloomer. There we go, we've got our answer. <laughs> thanks for listening. Thanks for coming, Daniel. Much appreciated. Great to be on, thank you very much. And thanks for, uh, I mean, that's cheesy, but thanks for your work. Because thanks for opening up, do you know what I mean? No, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Like a uh, South London Larry David. Um, Good quote, you can have that. <laughs> that so southlondonhardcore.com, if you want to listen to our other 100 plus episodes. Uh, put Daniel Riz Tazen is available into iTunes to get the um, brace period, which I recommend starting with. There's a, a please don't hug me uh, Christmas special in there as well. Yeah, exactly. Give you so a bit. Of give you a, give you a taster yeah. for that, and then you can go on to the blog sixteen oh seven westegg dot wordpress dot com at sixteen oh seven westegg on Twitter. We're at SLHC on Twitter. See you there. <laughs>